Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Back in March, when the COVID-19 outbreak was in its early days, I asked my brother, Steve Goodman, to join me on the Vermont Conversation to talk about what we could expect with this new virus. Steve is an associate dean at Stanford Medical School, where he is also a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine. I told him at that time that I thought that closing schools seemed like an overreaction. He quickly set me straight. He described the coronavirus as a tsunami that was about to hit. Four months later, with 130,000 Americans dead and millions infected, I wanted to check in with Steve again to hear his thoughts on where we are and what lies ahead. Steve Goodman, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks, uh, David, and thanks for having me. Vice President Mike Pence just led a briefing of the COVID-19 task force, and he declared, quote, we slowed the spread, we flattened the curve, we saved lives. How do you assess where we're at now? Well, I guess I'll reflect the uh, the words of uh, the esteemed Dr. Fauci, who's not very esteemed in some circles, uh, that is political circles, who says we're not doing very well. Um, it's, I think the numbers, the numbers that you just said, uh, speak for themselves. We have by far and away the most number of cases in the world and the most number of deaths in the world. Um, I think it's important to recognize that um, this uh, disease is still, for the most part, a pretty local phenomenon. So to ask, how is the United States doing is not really the right question because as you in Vermont know, you're, you're doing quite well. Um, very few cases, almost no deaths recently. And that's true of many places in the United States. Uh, New York just reported its first day of no deaths, I think it was yesterday. Um, so to ask how the United States is doing and to ignore Vermont or even New York, which came back from a cataclysmic uh, peak just a few months ago, um, is to not give the complete picture. So what we have in the United States is not just 50 different stories for the 50 states, but we might have 500 different stories because every county has a different policy. This is actually part of the problem. Um, and you're seeing, when you look at the maps, they're, they're like a checkerboard, even within states, even within states that you see, that you hear about are doing terribly. What's really happening is that they're, they're doing terribly in certain population centers and other places they're doing quite well. There's a, there's a county in California, for example, uh, that has no cases, zero. Um, and yet California right now is, is said to be doing rather badly. It's because there are some areas of California that are doing terribly. Where I am in the Bay Area, uh, we're actually doing quite well. Uh, the, 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 the cases and, and hospitalizations are going up uh, slowly from a pretty low base. So still, we don't want them to be going up at all. So, But overall, the problem is we have so many population centers that are exploding right now that as a country, I have to say that we're doing badly. Um, back in March, it was really just New York that was exploding. Now we have areas in Florida that are exploding, in Mississippi that are exploding, in 
in Texas that are exploding and parts of um, Arizona and, um, uh, and California, and actually too many places for me to, to uh, even elucidate. It's, it's very hard to keep track of the ec epidemic now because it has, it's, it's, it's like a, a fire with thousands of embers that are, that are popping up with not just little spot fires, but, but serious explosions of cases. So, and, and of course, in these places, the hospital systems are becoming overwhelmed. And again, seeing exactly, exactly what we saw, the terrible, terrible pictures that we saw in New York and, in, and before that in Italy and in China. When we first talked in March, and you could assume that public health would work in the way that you know public health is supposed to work, the normal methods of uh, testing, tracing, and containment. Where did you expect we would be by the summer in the U.S.? Oh, boy. Um, it's hard to remember. That seems like a lifetime ago. I, I will tell you where I didn't expect us to be, is that science and numbers would play almost no role. And right now, we have one of the worst um, states, uh, which is Florida, where the governor is still saying, we don't need to wear masks. Um, you know, people go about their business, and they're actually, in many cases, trying to hide the numbers that are going on in the hospitals. And of course, one of the tragedies here is that people don't see the people dying in the hospitals. They're sequestered away. So unless people understand what it means to have a hospital system that is overwhelmed, it might be an out of sight, out of mind sort of thing. And that's what, to some extent, what they're trying to do in Florida. Uh, I didn't expect that basic public health measures and just looking at numbers would become political. I did not expect that. That's all that Fauci is saying and getting pushback. He's just citing the numbers. I did not expect that wearing a mask would be political. Um, so as I think some people have said recently, uh, this is no longer really a public health and scientific crisis. It's a political crisis. We know how to suppress the virus. We know. Look what we did in New York. Look what they did in Italy. Look what they did in China. Look what they did every single place there was a major, uh, major conflagration. We, we beat it back. But we don't have the same feedback systems in certain states. Um, and therefore, the, the fires keep burning and they're even accelerated. So I, I did not think we'd be where we are now simply because we know how to suppress it. And every other country every other country except perhaps Russia and Brazil has done what we did in New York and kept it at a reasonably low level. Um, but we have not. And we have like 50, a hundred different, you know, governments in each state and each County is fighting this on their own. So Florida has just set a new record of over 15,000 infections in one day. 
They've had more infections in a day than all of Europe has had. Um, how do you bring an infection that is raging out of control, under control, especially when testing is taking over a week to return results? Well, we got it under control in New York without the, the amount of testing we have today. We, we know exactly how to do it. It's, it's social distancing. It's wearing masks. And at this level of uh, prevalence, it's, for the most part, staying home. Um, I think we have learned that we can safely engage in certain kinds of activities, mainly outside. Uh, I think that the, the science around the transmission routes has moved more to airborne than surface-borne, although surface-borne is not, certainly not absent. Um, but we have learned that maybe certain kinds of lockdown measures maybe aren't as necessary as long as we don't crowd closely together and we wear masks and we're respectful. But we know exactly how to do this. We just have to have the political will and personal will to do it. But of course, it can't be up to individuals. This is what leadership does. It gets people to work together towards a common goal. I keep wondering if the battle, the, the, the Churchill speech the, for the Battle of Britain, if instead of saying, we'll fight them everywhere, he said, you each decide whether you want to fight them on the beaches, <laughs> in the cities, in the towns. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You just decide, get a gun and decide how you're going to fight them off. I wonder if he really would have uh, marshaled the collective efforts of Britain in the same way. And that's pretty much what we're getting today, a real patchwork. And that patchwork is reflected in the case maps. Um, so we know how to do it scientifically, medically. We don't know how to do it socially and politically. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're talking this half hour with Steve Goodman. He's a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine at Stanford Medical School. He's also my brother. Uh, Steve, let's turn to some of the medical questions that many people have right now. There's a big question about whether people who get COVID-19 are subsequently immune. What do we know about immunity right now? Boy, that's a, that's a very complicated question. And as with all things COVID, you're watching science in the making. So these things don't just come as prepackaged facts. There are many, many streams of evidence that are coming in. I'll, I'll just have to say that the simple answer to your question is we don't know. What we do know is that people do develop traditionally measurable immune responses. These responses do seem to last for a while, but there are other people who don't mount very robust responses. We also know that we're, and we're getting some reports of people who seem to be actually infected more than once. The very, very rare reports of this, but not ignorable. Now, whether they just represent people who never mounted a robust initial response or whether their response waned after just a few weeks or months, we don't exactly know. Um, I think the consensus at the moment is that you get a 
medium, at least a medium uh, duration of immunity. And remember, this virus has only existed for six months. So by definition, we can't have answers about does immunity last a year? In fact, we can't really have much more information than does it last about three or four months because that's as long as we've had you know lots and lots of cases. So we're still learning um, and we're learning in real time. And this is very important because these sorts of questions are also critical to knowing whether uh, a vaccine will work or which kinds of vaccine will work. And if they do work for how long? So I think uh, all bets are off now. I don't want to say all bets are off. That's, that's an overstatement. The consensus is that there is some degree of immunity that lasts for a medium period of time. And we also get this information from other viruses, like other coronaviruses, not just this virus. How long, how many people, how durable, and how many people will be in the tails, that is, who, who do become susceptible quickly, we really don't know. I, I don't want to even cite the numbers that we have right now. It's, it's too little to make any firm conclusions, except that we know that there are people who seem to not very develop a not very robust uh, immunity. Well, let's talk about the state of treatments or therapeutics. What looks the most promising at this point? Oh, that's very tough to say. Well, of course, as many people know, there are a few um, therapies that have come out of large clinical trials, actually the same family of clinical trials in, in the UK. Um, I'll, I'll say something about the state of clinical trials in a second. So one is this uh, antiviral drug called uh, remdesivir uh, made by uh, Gilead, and that showed some evidence of uh, uh, reducing uh, the hospitalizations uh, or time of hospitalization. And just actually uh, in the last few days, there was some evidence that came out that supported what was only suggested before is that it actually may save some, save some lives. Uh, what we don't even know about that, is, though, is when in the course of illness it's best given. So there are many therapies out there, but as we learn about the pathophysiology of this illness, it may be that the best therapies are given at very, very different times. It may be that the antivirals, like remdesivir, are best given very early to prevent the, the, viral, the virus from, from entering cells and then replicating. And that there's an other classes of, of um, drugs called immune suppressants and immune modulators. And it may be that those are best given, given later. And that's the other therapy that's been shown uh, in a large clinical trial to work, which is prednisone. Very, very cheap, very, very widespread, just a standard steroid sort of generic immune suppressant. And it seemed to uh, be very effective in very severely uh, um, ill COVID patients, a little less effective in less severely ill, and it looked like it either was ineffective or maybe even harmful if given very early. So this is starting to suggest a picture of early attacks on the virus, and then later uh, therapies that focus on the immune system. And it may be that the pathophysiology, that is how people get sick, 
uh, sort of passes from one to the other. That is, the, the early effects are the direct effects of the virus, and the most severe syndrome that you're seeing that's really killing people may be mediated by our immune systems. That is, our, our, uh, our, the virus stimulates our body to attack itself um, in certain ways. What is, there has been an ongoing crisis with testing. You were talking about this problem in March. Um, what is the status of testing? It seems we're still in crisis. Yes. Um, this is one of the incredible disappointments, along with PPE, personal protective equipment, which is still in shortage in, uh, in many of the hotspots in the South. Um, it's like we're a developing country. We, we had the flair. We didn't learn from China, and then we didn't learn from Italy, and then we didn't learn from New York. I mean, where do we have to learn from? Uh, this is what central, the, the absence of central leadership, uh, this is where it gets you. Um, we don't have enough testing. We don't have fast enough testing. Uh, and we have to wait too long for the results of many of the tests in many areas. Um, uh, it's highly, highly variable because now there's so many vendors of the test. Um, the, the large corporate, you know, LabCorp and Quest are saying that they are, you know, running short. And a lot of the delays are dramatic even from the, the biggest corporations. But there's, again, a real patchwork of, 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 of suppliers of these tests. And um, we're just not nowhere close to where we need to be. It, it appears to be a little better in some states than others. Again, it's uh, quite a, you know, checkerboard. Um, but we're not within a light year, uh, or maybe only within a light year, of where we need to be, which is testing on demand with results within, you know, a day. And then, then people can know once they've been exposed, uh, you know, are they a threat to others? A test that comes back a week later, which actually was complained by a complaint heard from Mick Mulvaney, the, uh, you know, former uh, chief of staff in, in the White House, He's complaining that his son couldn't get a result for five to seven days. Well, that's virtually useless, you know, if you're exposing somebody for that that week. So uh, we're in a still in a miserable state, uh, better than we were, better than we were, but we're not catching up to the need. So against this backdrop, we're talking about returning to school, to colleges and to uh, K twelve schools. What do you think? is the right approach to doing this? And can it be done in areas with outbreaks, such as Florida and Southern California? It's hard to see that it could. And this is very closely tied to testing. If you could test every single school child and every single teacher in, in the morning and maybe every few days and know that everybody in that school is as tested negative, which, by the way, even that isn't a guarantee because the tests are not even close to 100% sensitive. But it would still go far to reducing the potential pool of infected kids or teachers in the school um, without really ability to massively test and repeatedly test everybody in that school is at risk and everybody at home who the children go home to is at risk. Now, some of the results 
some of the data from Europe suggests that schools are that are, are not as big a threat as we might think. But in almost all those cases where that data is coming from, the uh, the prevalence was not, as you say, where it is in some of the places in the in the uh, United States. So the, the the CDC has actually put out some pretty reasonable guidelines uh, about how to safely open schools. These are being completely ignored by uh, the leadership in Washington. I think if we adhere to those guidelines, uh, we'd be in an we'd be in an okay place. They talk about cases going down, cases being at a certain level, protective equipment, you know, and, and distancing be done in the school. We don't necessarily have the wherewithal or the resources to do some of these things. Uh, and uh, each district is deciding for themselves, uh, fortunately. And, and we just saw it announced uh, yesterday that the San Diego and, um, Neighboring counties, I think it's Los Angeles, are not going to open schools in in the uh, September. But one thing I want to really underscore here is there's a rhetoric that somehow politicians are shutting down the economy, that politicians are making decisions to open up or close. That's really false. It's the virus that makes the decision to open up or close. Um, if we let it run rampant, People are terrified. Well, not everybody, unfortunately, but many people won't go to work. They'll get sick. They'll be out of work. They won't cater certain establishments. And actually, this was shown in a recent study in Sweden, which had very lax standards, and they tried to keep their economy alive. And it looked like they were doing much better than everybody else, except they had a very, very high death rate. But it was thought that that was the price of keeping the economy alive. Well, they just did an analysis and it turns out, and this was in the New York Times, so it's not, not something epidemiologists exclusively know, that their economy has done no better than any of the neighboring countries. Uh, and yet they had a seven to 10 times higher death rate. So why did they have that depression? It was because of the virus, not because of any decision that politicians made. So it's the virus that's making decisions when we, when, when we cede control to the disease, then the disease takes over and that's what shuts down our economy. It's not political decisions to protect us that shuts down the economy. Have large parts of America essentially abandoned public health? Uh, and if so, what has replaced it? Well, this gets back to my point before. Um, uh, I do think that there is a role that that epidemiologists and doctors should not be in total control of social decisions. I, I think that there is a balancing act that has to be done by politicians, good politicians informed by data. They need to work in partnership. And for this disease, it may be, mean loosening up, dialing back, loosening up, dialing back. That may be the cycle that we have to go through to fight find just the right balance. But in places where they do not work in partnership, where data doesn't seem to make a difference, and when I say data, I mean the number of their constituents who are dying. They're not just numbers, they're people. Um, if that doesn't make a difference, then public health, by definition, has been discounted because 
the politicians are not in fact taking the health of the public into account when they make their decisions. So has it been abandoned? Not by the public health professionals. You will find in every county, everywhere, the public health professionals, as well as the clinical professionals, the, the ones, the poor doctors and, and all the ancillary staff working to save lives, none of them have given up. They're, they're pleading, pleading with their political leaders to take, take the steps needed to protect both their patients and, and them. Um, and, and to the extent that this, again, public common sense public health measures like masks have been politicized, it's, it's almost criminal, it's a shame. And yes, anybody who doesn't embrace such a simple, simple cheap measure to protect the health of their own constituents is abandoning public health, um, if that's what they're doing. Watching the news right now, there is no good news, uh, it seems. I'm wondering where you find hope in the middle of this crisis. <laughs> uh, well, as I said, it's very local. Uh, I find hope in places like Vermont, <laughs> uh, where, where things uh, have been kept under control. In, in, in the same story I mentioned before, in New York, which went from a forest fire to very, very little, in a place where it's incredibly difficult to control contact between human beings. Every time you get in a cab, every time you get on a subway in particular, every time you walk down the street, you're potentially you know, within six feet of, uh, well under six feet uh, 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 of many people. So I still believe that we have the wherewithal and the means to control this. It's a matter of our political leadership recognizing that it's not a hoax, that the virus has economic impact and that, and that the lives of the people who live in their districts matter. And I still, even in the worst places, um, there's signs that the governors and um, the, the, the county commissioners are, who've been resisting are, are listening. Not everyone, but a lot. And, and I do think in Texas, we're gonna see a reversal. I'm hopeful in Arizona, we're gonna see a reversal, but it shouldn't have come to this. I mean, it just should not have come to this. So hope, there are many places in the United States that have it under control, many places. But the places that don't are overwhelming the places uh, that do. Okay, well, Steve Goodman, I want to thank you for joining us again on the Vermont Conversation. Steve Goodman is an associate dean at Stanford Medical School, where he's also a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine and he's my brother. We're going to take a short break, so stay tuned for more of the Vermont Conversation. <laughs> 